Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Europa United's Eurochat. My name is Ken Sweeney and I'm joined by my Europa United colleague, Ola Yashinska. Hi Ola, how are you? Hi Ken, not too bad. Hi everyone. For those who are tuned in on the EUPR machine, the term EU solidarity is one that's been well promoted by both the internal and external avenues. We've heard it mentioned in many of the speeches by our Commission and parliamentary leaders in their quest to bring us together in this time of crisis. But it seems that one group of workers who are involved at the core of the EU institutions and are indeed vital in the everyday running of it are being left behind. Around 1,800 conference interpreters or ACIs face financial uncertainty because the EU has apparently decided to cease paying them and because they are unable to claim temporary unemployment due to their special tax status, their position at the moment remains, well, unclear to say the least. The problem has arisen because demand from the EU institutions for interpretation has plummeted since the coronavirus outbreak. There has been some support from MEPs, including German Green MEP Alexander Giese. And we also had an opportunity to speak to Irish MEP Chris McManus, so we got his thoughts about the situation. I find it incredulous. Uh, I would be find it laughable if it wasn't uh, such a serious position that the freelance translators are in. And, and as we've already know, they're, they work exclusively for the EU institutions. Their income has plummeted because there's been no meetings held. Uh, and because of the contractual uh, relationship with the, the EU institutions, it means that most of them are paying the EU community tax and therefore while they're back home in their own uh, home countries, uh, they're not able to get uh, whatever cover the, the, those member states are offering because of the crisis, because they're not paying maybe a, a, a national t- taxable income. So, you know, even if uh, activity increases in the parliament or over the next days and weeks, as, as it's beginning to do, safety measures will probably mean that most of the uh, freelance translators have to remain in their home countries. Uh, and, this is unprecedented, this pandemic, you know, and the first thing we need to say to ourselves is, is let's forget about the rules, you know, because too often the, the EU structures uh, over the past have, have allowed themselves to be stuck in that straitjacket. And in fairness to the Commission, the Commission done a couple of things right at the very start of the crisis, you know, they showed flexibility and suspended the fiscal rules, uh, and then they allowed flexibility in around state aid for, for member states. And that's what the same kind of creative thinking is all that's needed here, is is that they uh, accept uh, and acknowledge the fact that because of the unique situation that freelance translators are in, is that they have to deal with them in, in, in a very specific way. And like the bottom line is, you know, the, tra- the, the interpreters um, are instrumental into the functioning of the EU institutions very since its foundation. Most of them are, are freelance because that is the way the EU is designed it and that they're encouraging them to be self-employed so that therefore the EU administration doesn't look overly bloated. Um, you know, so they need to be shown the respect that they're due, that while they may not necessarily be direct employees of the parliament, they're a key element of the parliament and indeed the wider institutions. So so what the commission needs to do is, is, is withdraw this miserly uh, offer of a loan uh, that they would have to work out at a later stage of 1,300 euros. As you said in your opening comments, uh, 1,300 euros for what at this stage now is uh, a three-month lockdown. Uh, You would not expect anybody to be living uh, with with that miserly amount. I was listening to the comments of uh, Nicholas Schmidt, who's the Commissioner for Jobs and Social Rights. He was talking about no one will be left behind. 
uh, and that he says we'll try to defend the interests of all workers and need to take fully into account the situation of those who work for the Commission. Well, you know, they need to step up to the plate uh, massively in this regards. You know, the institutions are not a private employer. They're a public body, and therefore they have social responsibility. And that, to me, is the bottom line. So to that extent, you know, I have uh, a number of weeks ago, I wrote to the EU Commissioner, Johannes uh, Hahn, you know, who was responsible for budgets and administration, uh, highlighting this issue. Uh, the response we got was... Uh, it, it was the usual admin, yes, minister kind of civil service talk, unfortunately, and talked about the need for social dialogue. Well, you know, there's very little social dialogue when we see that uh, the Commission have tried to go over the heads over the representatives of the freelance translators and then tried to put the offer of the 1,300 euros directly to each of them, uh, you know, as in, individually, uh, rather than engaging with them collectively. It's just an, uh, an attempt to, you know, divide uh, the group but, uh, but by and large I think that they will they will hold fast together and I know that many of the MEPs have signed uh, another uh, letter for what it's worth to the Parliament President solely uh, regarding this issue. So like the bottom line is this, the, the translators, uh, the freelance translators are critical to the running of the institutions. We need to treat them with due respect. Multilingualism is one of the pillars uh, of the work in the institutions. Uh, and, you know, for these uh, highly qualified professional people to be treated in such a manner is, is as said, is incredulous. Our guest is Nick Pope, who is an interpreter and a representative of the ACIs, and we'll be asking him what is the reasoning behind the EU's decision to effectively cut loose over 1,800 people. But before we do that, I want to play for you all a recording of an interview I did a short time ago with one of the ACIs. This is a conversation I had with Svetlana Spych, who is based in Brussels. So let's take a listen to Svetlana's story, and then we'll have a chat with Nick. Now, I started off by asking Svetlana about her current situation. Uh, well, my situation at the moment can be can be described by the words dire straits, and I've never found myself in in this situation uh, so far. I've been uh, working as um, as interpreter, as conference interpreter for uh, close to thirty years, but uh, well, this crisis. It, unprecedented for everybody, so it has hit uh, the um, conference interpretation world uh, in a very unexpected way. So my situation is that uh, I last last physically worked in uh, February, and then in March uh, there was one what we call uh, medium-term uh, contract that was uh, honoured uh, in line with the contractual obligations and that was the 11th of March and that's uh, that was it for March and ever since uh, I haven't received anything any income and uh, no aid uh, so the situation is uh, is very very difficult at the same time as I put on my Facebook page the other day because friends are very supportive and even people who don't know me are very supportive uh, and also worried because I post a lot about the situation and and uh, I, uh, I said my mood is inversely proportional to my situation. So at the same time, I'm well. I'm uh, I'm a fighter, I guess, and and right now I'm I'm you know more of a fighter than ever because uh, 
anxiety, stress, uh, depression won't add. It will make it harder. So I'm like, as long as I'm positive, I will somehow find a solution. But I'm trying as, for, to find a solution and I'm writing some things and translating poetry, which are things that I love to do. But uh, financially, it's not a solution. It's, uh, it's uh, filling my time meaningfully. But uh, yes, I'm, I'm keeping my optimism. And you moved to Brussels when? I moved to Brussels exactly six years ago in uh, May 2014, because uh, throughout uh, 2013, 2014, I started having more and more work in Brussels. I lived in uh, Paris at the time and I worked as a freelance uh, interpreter. But for me, working for the EU institutions was uh, always uh, a sort of an ambition or a dream. I mean, Mm. I'm accredited. uh, I've been accredited for the EU institutions uh, since uh, 1995, but I worked more for other clients. And then uh, and then when I realized that there is more need for my languages, which are rare. And when I realized that. there is a possibility to move to Brussels and uh, and settle also. I was traveling every week, uh, I would maybe two, three days here. And in Paris, I, I was living alone with uh, with my son, 11 at the time. And it was uh, it was quite, uh, quite impossible. So I decided to move here with my son to to move my uh, professional domicile, which means that uh, that I'm closer to the institutions and also cheaper to the institutions, uh, cheaper for the institutions, and automatically it means uh, that that I'm more eligible uh, for 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 having a enough workload. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a, a dream come true six years ago. And you were busy when you got there, I presume. Yes, I was very busy. I was very busy at the time. But in our job, there's ups and downs. I mean, in all honestly, I must say that last year was was uh, the most peaceful in the negative sense of the word uh, mm. yeah, ever since. But uh, but there sometimes, you know, the elections uh, influence uh, such such a job, political decisions. Uh, um, last year there were the elections uh, for the European Parliament. So, so we do feel the um, the influence. We are affected by 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 such uh, uh, such uh, periods where simply there are less me- meetings. Huh? There's nothing uh, more political to it than that. And then, when on top of that, in in the countries where we come from, there are elections or some other reasons for which things are stalling. Then there is a drop in demand. But yeah, on the whole, I've been busy. Um, uh, with that, and I've managed to uh, to live uh, working mainly, not exactly exclusively, but almost exclusively for the EU institutions. My uh, my language combination is quite unusual because uh, at uh, the institutions, uh, most of the people work into the mother tongue, and then they add gradually uh, passive languages, uh, whereas. Uh, I uh, have uh, all the languages that I work with are active. That is to say, I work from these languages and into these languages as well. And uh, my language combination is uh, Serbian, Montenegrin, uh, English and French. So that's quite diverse then. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, I have uh, 
what we call in our jargon uh, for active boots right. and, and working into all and from, I mean, depending on the needs, of course. So do you think that there's going to be an outcome on this? Are you concerned about this? As, I'm, as I said before, yes, of course, I'm concerned. Yes, I'm very concerned because now it's been uh, close to four months. And, and as I'm saying, I'm an optimist and now I'm even working on my optimism. You know, I'm forcing mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. to be a bigger optimist uh, than than I, than I naturally am because uh, because otherwise it's uh, it's really uh, uh, very very scary. But uh, I am concerned. Uh, things have been going on for a very very long time. Even uh, even the the discussions. I mean, I I do understand. Plus, as interpreters, we work for the EU institutions, so we know how slow the bureaucracy, even with the best of intentions, can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, while the discussions with our negotiating delegation were going on, I mean, time was just passing and passing and passing, and and sometimes you would hear comments, well, the discussions, uh, I mean, on, on the top level, uh, top political level, discussions are ongoing, so that's a good thing. But I'm like... Yeah, but it doesn't help me if I need to go to the supermarket. I yeah. mean, after four months, I'm not saying, I mean, we, we, this is a job that is decently paid, not as much as people believe, but, but decently. But after four months, no, I don't have a buffer to go uh, for, for, for another four months. Is there an alternative? Is there a plan B? Uh, Actually, I said to myself the other day, uh, I'm condemned uh, to uh, to succeed. My plan B, and and sadly, it's a plan B for many, many colleagues, and some are already, many of us have uh, families, uh, children going to school, so so everybody tried to stay here, even in, in the hardest of situations, uh, at least until, until the summer. But then a plan B for somebody coming from Serbia, like me, although I left it, 30 years ago, and my son was born in Paris 70 years ago, uh, my plan B would be to go there, where Just life is Back to Serbia. And where, where I guess, I mean, as, as, a, as a Serbian conference interpreter, uh, with the languages I have, I, I believe I will find more work. But I spoke to my son actually about that. And uh, and he said that he he's uh, although he likes of course seeing grandma grandpa and and, and family and and friends but uh, he's absolutely not prepared to do that he's willing to to do his best to stay in Brussels find a job for himself etc and I don't find him mature enough to to stay on his own so uh, I don't know how but I just said to myself okay now it's clear it means that uh, that I have to succeed some somehow but I'm still working on the how part. So, Nick, hi. Thanks for joining us on Eurochat. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks a lot. We've just had a listen to Svetlana's current situation there. Um, that, that's a terrible predicament to be in. And, of course, um, now she's not the only one, but for those who perhaps are not familiar with your work, could you maybe briefly tell us what your job entails? I mean, one might often hear that representatives from various member states who go to Brussels to attend meetings have to speak a foreign language anyway. So why so many interpreters at institutions? Okay, so to, to give you a bit of background then, um, I work as a, a conference interpreter uh, for the European Union mainly. So I'm working for the European Parliament, so for Council, for the Commission, 
And um, the meetings are multilingual, but for the most part, the people who take part in them, the delegates, they speak their own language. So um, you can imagine you've got uh, all these people from different countries all together and they need to communicate and they need to do it quickly and effectively. So um, that's why they, they use interpreters. Uh, that doesn't mean that in every meeting that takes place, all the 24 official languages of the European Union are used. Uh, but uh, it, that depends on the way that the, the meetings actually set up. So what we do as ACIs, as uh, Conference Interpreting Agents, uh, we uh, help working in the booth uh, to translate everything that's said. Uh, it's a pretty big operation. I mean, there's lots and lots of meetings about lots of different things. Uh, so that makes it quite a, quite a stimulating environment to work in. You mentioned um, ACIs there, Nick, and perhaps before we start talking about the current crisis, you could tell our listeners who the ACIs are, because some people might think that all the interpreters who are working at the EU institutions simply have a job in Brussels. I mean, that they're on a permanent contract, that um, you know they're just staff members. But in fact, there are two types of interpreters, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. Um, because of um, changes in, in demand, um, we need uh, to use or the, the services need to use both uh, permanent uh, or staff interpreters on permanent contracts and, uh, and ACIs as well. Um, so uh, the staff interpreters, as I said, as I said they, have, they have permanent contracts, they're full time. Um, and we work on the basis of uh, contracts for a day. Uh, so you might get two or three of those together in a week, uh, or um, you might get you might just get one in any given week, uh, and um, uh, that allows the services to uh, cater for changes in in demand. As I said, so we're a kind of integral part of the system. Uh, so, for example, when there's very little demand uh, during the summer, uh, or the Christmas period, or Easter, then we don't work. Uh, so that, that's how it works uh, as, a, as a system. Uh, and uh, the truth of the matter is that we both, uh, staff interpreters and freelancers in the booth, do the same job. When you're interpreting and it's one of your languages that you have to interpret from, well, you turn the microphone on and, uh, and away you go. That's when you've got to have the chops. Nick, with regards to the situation, the current crisis that you're facing, can you give us a timeline as to how this situation has evolved? Because um, th- we're talking about this today because really the media hasn't caught a hold of it in a way that maybe I would have thought that it should have. We've seen it in local media in Brussels. Somehow, in some small ways, it's it's popping up on some of the international sites, but really just as kind of small, you know, uh, if, they were, if there was a newspaper, it would be small corner page articles. So can you tell us and our listeners... The, uh, some kind of timeline as to how the issue has evolved. Sure. Um, it'll be no surprise to you that the whole thing started around about mid-March when the confinement measures came in. Uh, that was the case here in, in Belgium. Uh, so at that point, uh, what was important was um, safety in the booth. Mm. Uh, we didn't really know very much about the whole COVID-19 uh, thing and how that was going to play out, how we were going to deal with that as a society or in the workplace. So we spent um, quite a lot of time uh, at that point in contacts with management, working out how we could make the booths uh, safe places to work in. 
Uh, so extra cleaning, for example. And it's worth remembering that the booths are not uh, they're not enormous. Uh, they're, they're big enough for us to work in, but uh, you're, you're talking about uh, spaces that uh, are not so big. Uh, they have ventilation systems, and there were suggestions that that might cause problems. And then, of course, we're using consoles, which um, uh, as interpreters, we, we turn the microphone on, we turn it off, we move the microphone, we have volume buttons to adjust the volume and so on. Um, and um, since we work in shifts, uh, these things need to be cleaned. So we were looking at that to begin with um, and moving towards a way that we could we could all work. Uh, then towards the end of March, the um, two interpreting services, which cover the Parliament and the Council and the Commission, decided that they would uh, they would start cancelling the long-term contracts that we have. To give you a bit of background here, um, there are three recruitment cycles for ACI interpreters working for the European institutions. Uh, one of those is a long-term cycle, so uh, around about September or October of every year. Uh, they give out contracts for the following 12 months, and that's called long-term. The other uh, cycles are mid-term, so that would be maybe over a period of the, the coming month, and then short-term, which might be anything from tomorrow to um, sometime in the middle of next week. So meetings for people on mid-term and short-term uh, had already begun to, to drop off by, by the end of March. Um, but for those of us with long term, things still looked as if, uh, well, we might be OK. But um, then, as I say, they took the decision to start cancelling these long term contracts. And uh, under the collective agreement, which governs our working conditions, they can cancel these at 60 days notice. Okay. So they started to cancel these uh, from the end of May. So anything over 60 days, basically. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So around, at the end of March, they started to cancel the contracts for the end of May. And Nick, sorry, just to keep you there for a second. Yep. The, the, you said you mentioned interpreting services. Are these a private company or is it actually a, a, an organisation or a department within the European Union? So the European Parliament has a directorate general, which is a kind of department for um, interpreting, which is called DG Link. And the uh, service for the Commission and the Council is called DG Skik. Mm. Uh, it's just the way that it's it's worked out uh, for historical reasons. There are two of them. Right. And so go on anyway. You were saying so that that's what happened. So, it came to the sixty day point. Yeah. So at that point, um, we began to get somewhat more concerned about the situation, and we asked them to withdraw that decision uh, because it meant that a lot of people were facing. Uh, well, serious financial uncertainty. Uh, they said that for legal and financial reasons, they weren't going to be able to withdraw the decision. And uh, under the collective agreement, which I mentioned earlier, which governs the working conditions between uh, ACI interpreters and the European Union, we have uh, a possibility of consultations with management, kind of negotiations, if you like. Right. So um, we started down that road. Uh, that was uh, round about the end of March and the beginning of April. Since then, we've had three meetings, uh, and that uh, the third meeting took place uh, at the end of May, uh, at which the institutions made their first and final offer. If I understand correctly, this is actually a one-off payment that has been offered, 1,400 euro or so, but not per month. 
but for the whole period from mid-March until the end of December this year. So that roughly works out um, at, I think, 74 euro per month. And effectively, it is actually a loan because you have to work off that money in any future contracts that you may be given next year. So what has been the reaction to this? Well, outrage, essentially, both for uh, staff and for, for ACIs. Everybody's been up in arms about it. Um, as you've pointed out, it is a one-off payment uh, and um, it is essentially a loan. You get the money now uh, and you have to do the work later. Um, you've mentioned that the, the time span through to December some of us are a bit more optimistic. Perhaps mm -hmm. things might already be better um, in, in September rather than December. But in any case, um, we're moving into the summer period now and ACIs don't work during the summer because there isn't really any demand. So whichever way this goes, we're still looking at uh, a period from mid-March through to September in which uh, most or a lot of ACIs will not have been working very much. And uh, the amount of money on offer is simply not enough to help them out. I think perhaps it's a good point now to, to, to mention that various member states have introduced various support measures for the workers, whether it's full-time, part-time employees or the self-employed. So people have had access to special unemployment benefits, one-off subsidies, extended deadlines, for example, for VAT payments or other tax payments and so on. But in case of uh, the self-employed, these measures were often depending on the previous level of income. But, but in this case, it's all to do with the special status of the ACIs. I mean, where do you pay your taxes and what kind of help can you expect and from whom? And I think this is why so many ACIs have found themselves, have found themselves in the limbo, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, a, a lot of the national uh, support systems uh, or mechanisms, if you like, that were, that were introduced are uh, based on, on uh, national taxable income. Uh, but uh, a lot of ACIs who are working almost exclusively for the European institutions have very low levels of national taxable income. We pay European community tax, which goes back into the European Union's budget. And so um, that means that they're not really very well covered, or perhaps not even covered at all, by uh, the national support measures. And this is another reason why we've been turning to a principal employer uh, to ask them to try and give us a hand instead. Nick, is there an opportunity for the ACIs to become unionised in some way? Um, that's an interesting question. We have uh, an international association, mm. which is called AIC, which is the International Association of Conference Interpreters. Um, and uh, AIC negotiates the collective agreements, which I mentioned, for the different sectors. Right. So we have one for the EU sector, there's another one for the UN sector, um, and so on. But the agreements are different from sector to sector. Uh, so um, we, we have that, and that is the basis for our working conditions. After that, we have delegations, the uh, talks, consultations, which I mentioned earlier, are being handled by our negotiating delegation. Hmm. And uh, we have two uh, subsectoral delegations, uh, one of which um, I'm a member of, uh, for the European Parliament, one for the European Parliament and the other one for the Commission and the Council. But essentially, though, AIC is not like, say, 
um, here in Ireland, SIP2 or something like that, they wouldn't be a kind of a left-wing union, traditionally unionized sort of tactic style. So uh, no, 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 no. So you, you know, it's just for our listeners. So you know, you, 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 you're in a, you, that, you, you wouldn't have a lot of strength in that, would it? There wouldn't be much, you know, f- optimism for that, would there? I mean, do I, they have a lot of power? Is what I'm trying to say. No, no. Um, the the agreement is a legally binding agreement, yeah. uh, and that's one of the reasons why we were we were paid the uh, contracts in that 60 day period right. because the institutions are, are legally obliged to do so. Um, but uh, the um, the ACIs working at the European institutions do not have to be members of AIC. Sure. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a, it's an association like any other professional association. People join it if they want to. And so uh, in in terms of unionized power or being able to mobilize, no, it takes um, quite a lot of work, um, a lot of contacts. Uh, and that's what we're we're busy with now. It's important to remember as well that um, we're we're quite spread out. Uh, there are ACIs in Ireland, for example, mm-hmm. but uh, across the across the European Union in Malta, France, Spain, Italy, there's a large number. Or there's a large number of them in Brussels, but uh, a lot of them are spread out across the the European Union, and they have different situations as well. And can ACIs work outside of the Brussels institutions? Absolutely. I, I also work on the private market mm-hmm. in Belgium from time to time. Not to say now that there's much work at the moment and I'm not kind of, you know, I'm just, just kind of stating the case here, but I'm not trying to say that, hey, there's work out there, you can go out and get it, you know? No, certainly not. Uh, the, the private market has dried up as well. I mean, we're only just beginning to see the easing of travel restrictions. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's, I don't think anybody really knows when we're going to see the volumes of work that we are normally used to uh, return. No, and it's it, you know we've no idea about how even they're going to approach conferencing, for example. That may well change too. So, Nick, I guess with all that in mind, um, and the fact that perhaps there might be some some pickup in the in the amount of uh, meetings being held, but nobody knows when and so on. What kind of support would you and your colleagues like to see or be happy to accept now? Well, that's that's a that's a very big question, uh, Olaf. Um, I think. Um, when, when looking at these kinds of situations, really what people are after is, is reassurance. Uh, we're facing financial uncertainty. We're mired in financial uncertainty. We don't really know when it's, when it's going to end. And people, of course, are worried. Um, people begin to get worried about losing their home or being saddled with debt or maybe having to retrain to onto a different job. Um, and so, of course, in these situations, what do you do? You, you tighten your belt, uh, you maybe change your plans, you put off projects where you were going to spend money and so on. Um, and, and that's something that we are doing now. And of course, as well, in our line of work, everybody's got a, a buffer in the bank. But uh, it's not many people, I think, that have got a buffer which will take them through four and a half or five months mm-hmm. without work. Um, so... Um, as I say, normally, normally the system works fine, but uh, it's it's far from a normal period that we're going through now with the the COVID nineteen crisis. We're living through unprecedented circumstances, um, and that's why we're turning to our um, our employer, our principal employer, for the most part, 
to see if they can they can give us a hand. And I'm, I'm confident that a, a solution can be found. There are lots and lots of very bright, very dynamic people working for the European institutions. Uh, so uh, I think they will be able to do something. Uh, politics is about making things happen. So um, I think that uh, something can be done. After all, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, but Nick, hang on a second now. I don't have to be as diplomatic as you do, right? Because I'm thinking, like, I'm I'm looking at all this whole EU solidarity issue, right? I mean, we we've you know we've seen the the line being promoted that the institutions are at the heart of Europe. We're in all we're all in this together, and how everyone relies on the interpreters' work, and yet they they've been sidelined by the people with whom they work so closely in normal circumstances. Now, come on, to me, that would seem like stabbing the back. Maybe I'm the, the, the lefty in me is coming out or something, I don't know. But what's the mood amongst the ACI ma- members about the whole EU solidarity issue? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, everybody's everybody's very upset. Uh, it's quite quite difficult for us to hear these high-sounding uh, phrases uh, about nobody being left behind and providing solidarity for everybody. Uh, and uh, and in the end, they seem to be forgetting us. Um, it, it's 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 good what they're doing. Of course, it's good, and they need to do that to to make sure that people throughout the European Union are okay. But uh, at the end of the day. As I said, we're not talking about a huge number of people if we look at the number of ACIs that there actually are. Mm. Uh, so um, I think people are, are, are pretty worked up, pretty upset that the uh, attitude from the outset in our contacts and our consultations with the with the administration uh, has, has pretty much been a flat no. Mm-hmm. So, so if the proposal you, you had received so far is in fact final... What, what what will your further steps be? Would you consider a strike? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> the thing the thing about this kind of thing is that um, these not not um, things like COVID nineteen, but yeah. there are problems that occur from time to time, uh, and we go into these uh, consultation processes, negotiations, and so on, and they tend to be quite protracted. So in this kind of game. You know, really, it's not over until the final whistle's gone, Mm. we've played the extra time, we've had the golden goal, we've done the penalties. You know, there's there's still a good bit of water to go under the bridge, I think, uh, before we we need to look at uh, things like strikes, industrial action, and so on. Um, Most of us are really more interested in getting back to work. Mm. And most of us really believe in the European Union in our hearts. Uh, we're upset now, but uh, we believe in, in, in the construction of it in the European Union. If we didn't, we wouldn't be going in every day trying to do these meetings sure. and keep things mm. going. Well, look, Nick, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. And um, we really do hope that the issue is resolved in a manner that's both speedy and favourable because, you know, it cannot be allowed to continue in its current form. So let's hope that it doesn't occur again. Um, Nick, important thing, before we end up on episode 21 today, tell us where people can go to keep up with your campaign. Okay, so we've got a fantastic communications team. Uh, We've put together a website in, in lightning speed. I've been amazed. Uh, how quickly this was put together. Uh, we've got some very creative people uh, because um, 
uh, quite a few uh, ACI interpreters uh, also involved in creative projects. Yeah. Um, so the website is wwweuaid 4 interpreters and the four in the middle is the number four okay we'll put that up on our podcast make sure it's in all the links and uh we'll make sure that you anybody who is accessing the podcast will be able to go directly to the website for you and listen Nick, from all of us here at europe united we, we wish you and your colleagues the very best and we really hope this issue will be resolved well indeed i mean who's to say uh, uh anyway thanks for having me having me on it's been great chatting to you so that's it from us at episode 21. If you want to find out more about Europe United, you can go to our website, which is Europe United EU, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, also at EuropeUnited.eu. My name is Ken Sweeney. Thank you to my guest, Nick Pope, and as well to my fellow Europe United colleague, Oli Yashinska, for joining me in this episode. Thank you. And we'll be back really, really soon. So take care, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>